Welcome to Factor Magri, dedicated to New Zealand's primary industry. Each week, I talk with farmers and growers, industry, the science community, and policymakers to hear their stories and views on matters relevant to both our rural and our urban communities. This week on Factor Magri, dairy farmer Tom McFarlane joins me to talk about his dairy operation and where the industry is heading from his perspective. He joins me now. Hello, Tom. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you. No, great. Thank you for having me on. Please, can you tell me a bit about your farm, where you farm, and what you farm? Um, our, our operation uh, has just changed a bit in the last six months. Um, previously, uh, we had a stud farm in Southland, mm. um, as well as our operation in Canterbury. Um, we've just sold the the stud farm in Southland mm. and um, consolidated our operations in Canterbury yep. on the two properties we've got there. So um, essentially the farming operation in Canterbury is still the same as it was, but it's now incorporated with with the the venison deer stud. Yep. So up here um, it consists of about 2,300 hectares. Mm. Um split across two blocks um one is predominantly high country uh, just at kimball mm. so there's 1500 hectares in that block mm. um where most of our breeding stock run um and the other block uh, about 650 hectares effective between geraldine and fairly mm. um, and we've got 180 hectares of irrigation there so yep. um, most of our finishing animals run there so we're about 20,000 stock units overall. Um, so this year we'll be calving about 2,600 hinds yep. and four forty cows and 1,800 ewes and finishing all progeny basically. Oh, nice. Um, with the start as well, we also run um, a number of – we run about 600-odd stags through for sale purposes, for breeding purposes, um, just for selection pressure on on our breeding program. So yeah, um, we we say we're a venison stud, but with six hundred stags, we still cut a fair bit of velvet as a as a byproduct, I guess. Yeah, you do. Yeah, okay. Um, it's good having that uh, uh, spread across all the red meats. There, it's a good good way to spread your risk. Yeah, it is. Uh, I well. In some ways, it's about that, and in some ways, I, you know, I'm pretty systems focused. So I think long term for all our red meat industries, well, we have to have a. Well, it's not just for the red meat, but it's for the farming sector. I think I think we have to use um, integration of livestock classes to suit the environment in which we farm in. All the different stock classes have different timings of, of feed supplies and you've got different levers to pull at different times of the year. Yep. Um, you know, uh, one of the reasons we've still got sheep in our operation is is to do with ragwort um, weed control and, and things like that as well. Yep. And, yeah, it's just that, that's you know, parasite control. I mean, that's some of the big things that have come at us. I mean, on the sheep side... There's been a lot of discussion um, about, you know, the the use of capsules and uh, what the lack of that going forward this mm. year. Um, so I think, you know, we've got a pretty hard-nosed approach when mm. it comes to all our stock, including the stud, about drenching mature livestock. 
um, in the fact that we we don't. Yeah. Um, and and the integration of the different livestock classes is is a big big part of that. Mm, so. Mm. Um, yeah, and and I guess you know, looking at profitability sides of things, um, it, it, having them all all fit together, I guess, probably allows us to have a slightly higher effective stocking rate. Mm. Um, but it also does, you know, protect us a little bit when we've got ups and downs. Um, yep. in prices, uh, yeah, we've the the venison's obviously been pretty challenged for the last few years with with COVID. Mm. And uh, yeah, now we're looking like we're heading into a pretty challenging season for for sheep as well. So, yeah, it's nice yeah. being able to finish all your own progeny. Yeah, look, I think that's another sustainability thing. Uh, when we've we've just taken we took on the second block in Canterbury um, as a as a lease uh, two just over two years ago, and. Part of the strategy for there was we wanted to increase the size of our operation up here so we could eventually bring the bring the start up and have the breeding stock on the hill where they would be best suited. Mm. But also having previously with our commercial operation, we'd been reliant on buying in a lot of stock, whether yep. that was um, cattle, sheep, or deer, uh, and sustainability rise going forward. You know, going back to parasites and things again, um, and genetics. Big part yep. of what we do is that we we weren't having enough control, mm. and you know we thought we were always at mercy of the market. So yep. okay, you you know roughly what margin you can make when you buy stuff in, mm. but you're bringing in parasites and all these other sorts of things. So yeah, we we wanted to have that control. A big I'm a big believer in not being forced into making decisions. Yep. So yep. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that we won't sell store lambs, for example, but we can do it on our own terms, not um, when the weather dictates. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> basically, exactly. Basically. So, um, and yeah. how how has winter been? Uh, it's actually been, I mean, the, last, the previous two have been absolutely diabolical. Mm. So... This one comparatively <laughs> has been yeah. an absolute dream. Yeah, Look, we, we've had we, we've had wet periods, but they haven't lasted too long, thankfully. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so so that's so it's been good. Look, yeah, we're we're sitting in a, a pretty good spot right at the minute. Yeah, it's good. And have you got? There's been there's been mild periods, but there's been colder periods too. So I think yeah, yeah, all in all. Um, it's been fear. <laughs> That's good. And um, any any signs of spring yet? Oh, yeah, maybe in the last day or two. To, to yeah. be honest, I think that the last few weeks have almost been colder than than the previous month before that. Yeah, um, I agree with that. Looking, yeah, looking at our um, our moisture meters that have got soil temperature probes on it. You know, we were consistently sitting around six and a half, seven degrees here mm. for, for a long time. Mm. And then it sort of dropped back to five, five and a half. Um, although I haven't checked in the last few days, but I suspect we're, we're heading up again after a nice weekend. So so you've had grass growth sort of right up until what sort of mid-July, late July sort of thing? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah. Which is which is definitely a, a real advantage for mm. us. Um, so and and good utilization too. It's not just the utilization of 
of the crop, but utilisation of grass too. Yeah, that's that's a big big thing we find with the deer, especially when things are wet. Um, we've got heavy clay soils on a lot of the farm. Yeah, and as soon as it gets wet, the deer get unsettled. Yeah, they, they tend to to move around, and it just brings the the mud through the through the pasture, and then it's you can't make the meat in anyway, so you got to move on. Yeah. So, um, yeah, one of those those grazing techniques where, um, yeah, again, it's, it's good to have cattle and things. Yeah, that, yeah, that's that, right. Um, graze a bit differently. Yeah. And you touched on venison. Obviously, last couple of years because of COVID, it's been pretty tough on the, on the venison front, but it's looking like it's bouncing back at the farm gate this season, which will be pleasing. Yeah. Look, I think it's been an interesting um it's been an interesting period the the finishes margins have been okay even through the lows um, yep. and the breeders took a lot of the pain mm. and from a from a uh, stud point of view when we rely on selling sires to breeders um there's been a fair bit of contraction there uh, across the whole industry um, because it just it, w- it was the worst profitability uh, mm. of our whole of our whole enterprise. Mm. Uh, but at the same time, you know, now with the deer industry stuff that we get involved in, there, there's been the the people that left are really focused on what they're doing, yeah. um, and there's been a lot more focus on you know efficiencies. Um, uh, with the finishing animals and and you know focus on parasites with the right breeding stock and those sorts of things. So people are really starting to get folk tuned into what genetics um, are right mm. um, or, the, or the right fit. And and same, you know, the finishes are about the same. To be fair, it's really focused them in on going. Okay, these deer are the right fit. These are going to make me money even at these lower schedules, but even though these other ones might be slightly cheaper, the genetics in them don't dictate that they're going to grow enough and therefore I won't be able to kill them mm. at a suitable time and therefore I'm not going to make enough. So yep. from, you know, that, that's our bread and butter from a stud breeding point of view too. So so there's, there's been advantages and disadvantages. It's been bloody tough from a financial point of view. Yeah. Um, and, and if we weren't all sort of in-house, I'd... I'd yeah, I don't, it would have might been be a different picture. Yeah, yeah, it would have been very challenging to make it make it work. Yeah. So, um, but over that period, I guess we've sort of almost doubled down. And yep. when we took on the lease block, there was a lot of sheep. Um, there was a lot of sheep, um, and we had to develop the deer fencing. So mm. we've traded out sheep on on a reasonable high over the last two years. Yeah, and retained. Retained um, deer numbers, and um, and so that that's actually worked good from a, a yeah, trade yeah. point of view. That was yep. uh, yeah for, for our own business anyway. Mm. And I know that you you mentioned that velvet is mainly a byproduct for you, but the velvet's been pretty steady, uh, hasn't the last few years? And I guess for many guys that have a a solid velveting herd or, you know, velvet is a big part of their farming business that would have steadied the ship to some degree over the last two or three years? Yeah, look, the, the velvet thing's um, been, been going pretty 
pretty steadily, really. There was a few hiccups last season, um, but I think it all ended up all right. Um, my, yeah, I don't, I'm not as involved in, in that side of things. Yeah. Um, and to, in terms of an industry thing, there's definitely been a swing towards more velvet and less venison. Mm. Um, and I think from an industry point of view, we've just got to be careful. We keep the balance right. Yep. Um, you know, because from a venison supply chain point of view, too much velvet means too many cull stags, yep. you know, and a lot mm. of um, surplus velvet animals mm. coming at different carcass weights at, at you know small, smaller carcass weights basically mm. at the wrong times times of year yeah so that does the, the velvet thing does have a big influence on the venison supply chain yep. but it's definitely something that we you know the industry has has relied upon over the last few years and there has has been a significant swing towards that mm. so i think it's like everything it's it's all about balance and it, it's good to have multiple strings to your bow mm. um, and the the new industry strategy and budget has reflected that and there's been um, a bit more a bit more of the funding and marketing and research and stuff from from my basic understanding has has been directed towards that um, velvet side of things to to sort of even things up a wee bit make sure we're putting focus on on, on where the money's coming over the last couple of weeks I've caught up with Innes uh, and Reese from Dins and yeah. it seems to me like they're doing many things to develop markets for deer farmers in New Zealand. What do you make of their efforts there and particularly around, obviously, a lot of work going to China the Velvet Front, but indeed venison into the USA sounds quite promising. Yeah, I think, you know, I was in the US, uh, how long ago was that? Um, yeah, I was in the US 10 years ago. Yeah. And and it was it was looking pretty promising then, and I think it, there's there's a lot of room room for growth. Um, we're such a small industry, such a small volume, and uh, so, so there's there's a comparatively larger group of of people that can afford to buy those things. Mm. So I think um, that the nature of that market being most of the year round. And a lot of chilled product. Um, that's where we need to hit as an industry. Mm. Uh, so um, it, it is exciting. I, I think COVID's taught us quite a few things that we need to have a balance of all markets. Yep. And I think that's one thing when you look at the the sheep and beef, um, probably more the sheep than the beef, but definitely um, definitely sheep. It um, probably both of them at the moment, but more. Importantly, the sheep. What you've seen the price is that over reliance on one market, being China, mm. um, has has led us to uh, that might be an oversimplification of what's going on in the sheep market too. But there's you know that over reliance on one market can can really drive our drive our returns, good mm. or bad. Yeah. So we've we've just got to be careful about that. Yeah. So I think you know there's some real opportunities, like you said before. We're we're getting back to levels that are that are sustainable from a farming point of view, and it, and part of that is also driven by the relativity to sheep. Mm. Um, there might not be quite so much positivity if we were still sitting where we were in 
you know, lamb was still sitting at eight dollars. Mm. But that that relativity, I think, is is putting it in perspective for for mm. a lot of guys. Um, so look, we we need to keep going, but I think we don't want to push it over the top like mm. sort of happened last time. Mm. And I don't think there's a a massive danger of that in the short term because with the contraction in the industry, I think the numbers are going to suffer a bit over the next year or two. Mm. Um, and and it's might have touched on it about the 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 livestock numbers, but our, our kill's been reasonably steady for the last few years. But I I've got a feeling that with the extra capital stock that's been killed over the last few years, that's what's held the numbers steady. Mm. And then this could be the turning point um, of the year where all of a sudden the, the numbers drop well back mm. um, because we no longer have a kill off of capital stock and we, it'll either hold steady or we might even get some retention too. So, um, and, and that's where I think it, you know, a lot of a lot of our clients, venison clients, are um, uh, a mixture of, of sheep, cattle, and deer. Yeah. And so it's easier in a, in a year such as this. You know, people will alter their their ratios of the different stock classes subtly mm. to um, to help help with the with the income. So, what are the biggest challenges you see for for the future of farming in this country? Obviously, for deer farmers, but for farming in general. Look, I think I think one of the biggest challenges we've got as an industry is is the transfer of assets and the need for a cash return. Mm. I guess, yeah, I probably look at it slightly different. Being the next generation down, and um, you know, a, a parent generation, they've there's been a lot of capital gain, and that mm. that's effectively where they've made their money. Yeah, whether we're going to continue to see that capital gain. I'm not 100% sure, but I think the way the businesses or the value of the businesses and the farmland now, we need to be able to produce cash returns to be competitive mm. with other investments, basically. Mm. So, um, and, and, you know, there's family succession things, um, you know, where family members have to be paid out or whatever, but all of that relies on the ability to produce cash. Yeah. So um, I think that that's a real, real challenge is that's saying, hey, look, we can't rely on on these um, capital returns anymore, so we need to be able to produce cash and whether that's getting in through equity farming or leasing, um, um, yeah, any various mm. options that, that may be out there. We, we've got to bring that next generation in, um, but it's, it's how, how do we do that um, mm. at a rate that um, that's, that's doable for everyone, basically. Is the family farm in general at risk, do you think? Uh, yeah, look, I Not your I family farm, but just in general, you know, obviously, you know, we've, yeah. we've talked about yeah, that, no, you, just... you know, touching on Barriers to entry are increasing and talking about equity partnerships and corporate farming, you know, is a, is a traditional family farm still going to be around in, in 50 years' time? Well, I guess if you look at it, you know, scale is getting pretty important now. Mm. Um, and that's probably because margins have been squeezed and you need a bit of economies of scale. Mm. So, you know, there are some fam, big family farms, you know, 
that you see publicly that that are doing pretty well, but a lot of them are um, they've either taken the family farm and they're vertically integrated and doing different things to create um, income in other ways. And so I think we might see a, a fair bit more of that. Mm. Um, and, and it's it's having that ability to to um, well, you got to produce produce the money some one way or another, mm. or to be able to tra- transfer the assets. So, yeah, maybe maybe in some cases, but also think that you know New Zealand and New Zealand farmers have got a history of being innovative, so that these things will happen. Um, you know, there'll, there'll be something developed, um, or people will develop different ways of of transferring the assets, whether mm. it's between but generations or um, or, you know, where there's no family wanting to farm, an older generation might bring in an equity manager or or so on. Um, something something to that effect to be able to as a different method to transfer through the assets, and then it becomes a new new family that's involved. Do you ever see a time where we'll move into more of a value or an increased value system? of farming and move away from a commodity-based trading, essentially, uh, farming system? Look, I'd like to think so. <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah. It's something that's that's um, it's always, yeah, I've got, I've got a bit of a an interest and a passion in that side of things uh, yeah. because I, I think it's really important that farmers understand where their product goes and who's buying it. What they're looking for and those sorts of things. Mm. Uh, so I, I really do have that interest, but it's a very complicated thing. Mm. Yeah. Um, and so, can we all achieve it? I, I don't know. I mean, there's, again, you go back to the economies of scale and working together and those sorts of things. I, yeah, I haven't quite figured out how the best way is to do that we we definitely need to be looking at value add but then also commodities have their their advantages as well because mm. you know you can always sell it that's but, right but then it comes at a at a at a cost on on the value side sometimes mm. um so uh, yeah i i probably haven't developed <laughs> yeah a i i, I I've I've got a preference. I don't know which way I'd like it to go, but how do we get there? I'm yeah, not a hundred percent sure. Are there any ways, or do you have any thoughts on what policymakers could be doing to mitigate some of these market risks? And you know, particularly around you know, I look at things like input costs. Farmers are certainly struggling with at the moment, and I look at land values and you know the inflationary way that things like carbon farming and permanent forestry artificially well in my view artificially inflates the value of land which makes it really really difficult for for young guys coming through and for anybody to have a crack at getting into farming yeah yeah i agree uh yeah look i guess certainty is probably the, the first thing and that's yeah. the challenge it's hard to focus on anything vertical integration if if you're uncertain about what the future is on farm and so there are so many uncertainties, whether it's with, um, you know, carbon emissions, all of these other sorts of things. And we haven't got all of this. So, yeah, 
there's there's a there's a hell of a lot to to worry about. Uh, or there's a hell of a lot to think about on, mm. on that sort of front. So I guess all the energy is going into that and going, well, hey, we've we've got to survive. Um, we mm. haven't got a lot of control over the input costs, mm. and that's that that's challenging. So people are going, or oh, we're watching the margins getting squeezed. Uh, we haven't got any control over the the price. Yeah. Um, the, you know our output price. Yeah. Um, because we get told by a meat company or a milk company or this is what the money whatever, is. Yeah. That that's what the money is, and yeah. we 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 can't do much about it. And mm. then our input costs, are whatever Ravens Down or whoever sees they are. Yeah. And 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 we get to decide how much we're going to put on. Mm. Um, so there's a there's a there's an element of not being able to control a lot of stuff mm. and and trying to develop a system where we can actually make money. I mean, vertical integration, all these other things, they take investment mm. and and farmers are, are cash poor anyway. Mm. So it, it makes it challenging to go that, that next step. Mm. I, I so I think, you know, going back to your policy makers thing even we talk about government um there's obviously uncertainty about what's going to happen there in the next next 12 months so um once once we've got a decision there that that may provide more or less uncertainty <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, which which may help or, or not but everyone's kind of sitting on the fence going well we'll have to kind of see what what's going to happen here mm. but meanwhile trying to think of of strategies of what we can do to to survive if scenario mm. does does come up. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah, so it's it's a very challenging challenging thing. I I don't think a lot of people realise how many things farmers are uh, juggling. <laughs> mm. Yeah. I know. There's certainly plenty to to keep an eye on as we move through the next couple of months, and it'll be interesting to see what happens. Look, I know you're busy. I'll let you get on. I've really enjoyed chatting with you today. Thanks for your time. Uh, Thanks, Angus. Appreciate getting the opportunity to talk to you. That was a good yarn, that. Tom, I would suggest, is an industry leader, and I really like the diversity within his farming system. He is buoyed by venison bouncing back, as all deer farmers will be. But he is right. Farmers need a much bigger cash return from the food they produce that go into our international markets. So a question for you out there, does the current track policymakers are on help or hinder farmer returns in this country? My view is well known, it's about the policy, not the colour of the scarf. With a potential change in our government this year, and no matter which side you sit on politically, this further exacerbates the uncertainty and anxiety our farmers continue to go through. Plenty to think about there. And that's all from me this week. Thank you for listening and catch you next time.